0: I happen to know for a fact that Charles has a fabulous sermon lined up for you today because I heard it first service and you're in for a real treat. So let's welcome Charles. Thank you. It's nice to be warmly welcome. Now he set up uh, expectations pretty high, so I don't know. Secret to happiness is low expectations, okay? (laughs) Anyway, I'm happy you're here. We are in a great sermon series called Faith Misunderstood. We've been addressing a whole bunch of misunderstandings about faith. It's been generating a lot of conversations, a lot of questions, because we are challenging, well-established assumptions about faith that really put us in a wrong place, in a bad place. And so, it's been good, yeah? You guys been liking it? A lot of people have been saying it's been great. And today... I want to address the topic of the Bible. The Bible. How to approach the Bible. Because the Bible is such an important part of faith for so many people, right? It's foundational for so many people. So I just want to lay out our church's belief, stance, approach to the Bible in one sentence If we were to force to put it in one sentence, we would say, we believe life-giving Bible for everyone. We believe Bible is life-giving for everyone. Sounds good? Can you buy into that? Life-giving for everyone. Very, very important for us. And so today I want to address two specific misunderstandings Two major mistaken approaches to the Bible that makes it neither life-giving nor for everyone. Got it? They are to treat the Bible as all men or all God. All men or all God. We do not believe this. Now it's either of this. From the beginning of faith, from the beginning of the Bible, Jewish scholars, Christian Bible scholars, they have all argued about this, debated about this, and divided three ways on this question. Is the Bible all men or all God? There are three camps. first camp includes fundamentalists, Orthodox Jews, Islam. They view the Bible... As being all God, without any error, perfectly reflecting the will of God on earth. No human interference that can cause an error, as if God possessed someone. And it was like, you know, download from heaven. You know, just perfectly transmitting the will of God without the human being playing any role, like Siri or something you know what i mean like siri and then you know you just download now if i use siri it never gets it right just just never gets it right but presumably god's pronunciation is perfect and so just perfectly transmitted will of god we do not believe that is how god operates ever that that god doesn't take someone over like possesses someone And robs them of their will. That's against his nature. God is love. He doesn't do that ever in the Bible. So that is not what we believe. Um, And then the second camp. That's not our position either. That includes the secular liberal position. Which is that the Bible is all men. That is just men's best attempt. At trying to get to a higher place. To spirituality, morality. To all men. That's not our position either. We believe the Bible is neither all men nor all God. It is a collaboration between God and men. It is inspired by God. It is initiated by God. And yet it is written by human beings using the language they know. It's not written in some heavenly language. It's written in ancient Hebrew. It's written in Aramaic. Using the language they know shaped by their culture they understanding at the time. And, and of course, that means he can't be perfect because the Bible itself tells us that human beings can never see anything perfectly here on earth. If human beings had any role in this, they have to introduce some error because we are all flawed. If we deny this and treat the Bible like Islam views their holy scripture, Quran, it's all God, just perfect dictation from heaven, to be enforced and applied through all time to all people through all cultures because it is the heavenly ideal. And the argument there is that, you know, our sense of morality, our own sense of what is loving and what is evil, it changes over time. And it changes from culture to culture. And so we need to submit Our sense of what is right and wrong to this unchanging absolute word of God revealed in the holy scriptures like Plato's ideal beyond the cave or Confucius heavenly ways. We need to be transformed by the word of God. We need to submit our sense of morality to God's word instead of the other way where we subject God's word to our sense of morality. You know, that doesn't make any sense because it's always changing, right? And and so that argument sounds good at first, but if we take such all-God approach and apply the Word of God from the Bible as inerrant to be applied to all people, the Bible can never be life-giving nor for everyone. For example, it's not life-giving for slaves, Aside from multiple Old Testament passages, even in the New Testament, we find in the Bible commands like this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in all things. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. There's no other way to interpret these commands but to say the slaves are to obey all kinds of masters, and all kinds of things, no matter what the demand is. Today, there are estimated to be more than 25 million slaves around the world, even today. Are we to quote these Bible verses to these, these, these slaves and tell them to submit their outrage and their revulsion and their rejection to, to these Bible verses? Because that's only their cultural their own, their own sense of morality, this is the word of God, unchanging, absolute yes, it offends our sense of morality. We are morally outraged at the prospect of slavery. But we need to submit that to the word of God in the Bible. Are we to say that? Are we to reject our moral outrage at slavery? Because this is the Bible. Pastors and church leaders did precisely that for 1,800 years. But that is not life-giving. Neither for the slaves or for anyone else. Can we agree on that? Yes? Slavery is to be rejected. It's morally outrageous. Agreed? Well, for women... There are more than 25 million women in the world. You know, close to 4 billion people. The Bible is not friendly to gender equality. Because it was written by men of Middle Eastern culture two to 3,000 years ago. Can you imagine what their mindset was like? I mean, look at them now. <laughs> you know? And so we find in the Bible... Declarations like this. Man was not created for the woman's sake, but women for the man's sake. It's in the New Testament. You know, you women, how do you feel about this? <laughs> All right. I mean, this is the Bible. Word of God. Absolute unchanging ideal of heaven. What if you heard some politician or some leader say something like this? Man was not created for women. Women was created for men. I think pitchforks will come out, right? I mean, it's good for men around here. Yeah, I mean, like you want to, you can ride on that, right? But not for women. It's not life-giving for women to apply this. Have this kind of mindset, the Bible says. Wives. Submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Married men, sounds good, yeah? Not so good for married women, yeah? No. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak. But must be in submission, as the law says, as the Bible says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Should we apply this at this church? Anyone stupid enough to go there? I mean, it's not just like women teaching. This is saying, women, you cannot say anything here. You want to say something? You have questions? Shut up. Go home. Ask your man. That's the only proper way to behave for women. This is the word of the Lord in the Bible. Shall we apply this today here? How can we do that? Is this the absolute heavenly ideal or reflection of the mindset at the time? It's a really good question, right? Now I need to go a little bit lighter. So let's go a little lighter. It's too heavy. Let's talk about those of you who love rare steak. How many of you love rare? You know? Did you know it is an abomination before God to love rare steak? You know? Medium rare is no good either. Right? How many of you like medium rare? Only the well done is safe. You know what that means, guys? That means no more Shake Shack. Because <laughs> they do theirs medium rare. It's abomination before God. Shall we close them down? That's, uh, that's bad news for many of us here, yeah? Bad news. So, this question of how we should apply the Bible, how we should approach the Bible and its rules, it's been a big question from the very first days of Christian church. It comes up very early. When the Gentiles began to become Christian. Mind you, these are Roman pagans. They did horrible things. You know, I, I love watching and reading about Rome and Roman history. You know, there's some good TV series and books about Rome. And you read about what it was like back It's unspeakable. Horrible things were going on back then, Okay? And some of them began to become Christian. And so, you know, the church, the Jewish Christians who grew up on the Bible, they, they looked at these pagans becoming Christian and they behaved horribly. They did not grow up with the Bible. They Their sense of morality is so different from people who grew up with the Bible. And so the church, this became a question. How? What do we do with these people? How much of the Bible and its rules must these new Christians Follow, this comes up, Acts 15. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles, these pagans, must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders meant to consider this question. So, this faction within the Christian church, they are Christian pharisees sounds kind of oxymoron doesn't it given how the pharisees were the greatest enemy of jesus apparently there was a strong faction within the church who were christian pharisees and of course they are the bible people that's why they killed jesus and so they want new believers to be circumcised and then be required to keep The law of Moses. The law of Moses, that's the only Bible they had at the time. That refers to the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament, you know. And so what they're talking about is the new believers must be required to follow the Bible and its rules. That sounds reasonable, right? I mean, that's kind of the Christian program today, right? Accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Get baptized and follow the Bible and its rules. Sounds reasonable? That's their demand. That's what they want because they had the same approach to faith as we commonly assume what Christian faith is about today. So to settle this huge question, this is one of the most important questions in faith. How much should the Bible and its rules be required of new believers? Big question. Historic decision for the future of Christian faith. And here is the decision of the church council. See, this is, because this was such an important question, the first church council on record was called. It's called Jerusalem Council. And all these apostles and elders, all the available apostles around, they met together. And they come to a decision. This is what they say. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It's such an important decision. They are sending top elders and apostles to give to them this decision. And here's the decision. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Very important decision. And it's being described as coming from the apostles and elders, so this is uh, this has more authority than a single pa- single apostle like Paul or Peter writing a letter to one of these churches like Corinthians or Galatians. Not just a, one apostle is writing their own own you know stuff to a church. This this is all the apostles available gathered together praying and conferring, and debating, and, 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 and coming up with this decree, it has, it has binding authority on the church. Very, very important decision. And it begins like this. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And I'm, I want to make two comments on that. One is they make it a point to make sure to say, It's from the Holy Spirit and us. You get that? It's not just God. It's God and human beings together. It's a collaboration. They make it a point to include that. It's a human component to this. And this may be why they're kind of humble about it. Did you notice that that it says it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us? Do you find that interesting at all? It seemed good to the Holy Spirit? Why isn't it? Thus saith the Lord, God has spoken all the apostles Given the authority from the living God, we have come forward together and we are telling you where it's at. This is the will of God coming to you. Listen to us. Why isn't it like that? Right? It's like, he eh, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Huh? It seems good to the Holy Spirit. I mean, to say it seems is to allow for some mistake. Right? Isn't that true? When you say it seems good to me, you're not like speaking from certainty, are you? This is not certainty. There is room. And this is sort of why we, we do the prayer team the way we do it. We try to listen to the Holy Spirit. We don't say, "Dost says the Lord. We say, you know, we kind of think. Well, the Spirit is speaking. And it's so powerful because we take that humble approach. Contrast this with the Christian Pharisees who demand the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Do you notice the contrast? This absolute language, absolute certainty language must, required, they seem so sure They seem so self-important. They seem so grounded and driven by the need to have something certain driving their faith. And that is a big need in human beings to go for certainty. And that's the spirit of idolatry. To find something tangible and certain and replace that with God. Only God can speak for God on earth we have this desire to make the Bible speak for God for us, and it must become certain and inerrant, and it must have all this perfection. We get so serious about it, the Jerusalem council denies them completely. They say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything. The Bible and its rules. Beyond the following requirements, you are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. In the Bible of their time, the law of Moses had 613 laws. 613 laws in the Bible and its rules. And of them all, only four are mentioned. Four. Four. And three of them have to do with food. You know what I mean? Now now eating was a big deal. Eating meat with blood in it was a huge deal. Rare steak was a big deal to them. They're, They're cited very often in the Bible. more, A lot more often than homosexuality. And with such strong warnings. It's not just an abomination. It says God will cut you off and set his face against you if you eat rare steak. Strong warnings, yeah? So it's understandable. They thought this is the most important stuff. So that's why it's in there. But still, I mean, consider what was going on in the Roman world at the time. I mean, gladiators were killing each other, chopping each other up as spectator sports. It was the most popular sports of the time. Tens of thousands of gladiators were killed every year. And everyone's going, yeah, yeah, chop them up. Right? It was the football of their time. Horrible, don't you think? Why don't you prohibit that? Fathers had the right to kill their children. Fathers had the right to abuse their children in any way they see fit. They had the right to sell them into slavery. Do anything they want. Horrible stuff. Slavery, racism, misogyny was so rampant, so cruel, so unimaginably terrible. Many Christians did not do those horrible things. The point here is that they were not prohibited from those things. Don't you wish that the church council, the first church council, debating what the new Christians must do, don't you wish they had prohibited slavery and racism and misogyny? Wouldn't that have been awesome? Right? That would have been great. But they were the products of their time. You can't expect more from them. I mean, this mindset they had at the time is revealed So clearly, by the daily prayer of men of faith, men of faith, they prayed every day, thank you, God, that you did not make me a woman, you did not make me a slave, you did not make me a Gentile. Thank you, God. Daily prayer. Don't you want to just whack them? (laughs) This is faith. But that is what everyone thought. Even though they were apostles, they were also men. And every man at the time thought these were just self-evident truths. Nobody debated or argued otherwise. This was just so self-evident, like earth is flat. Everyone knows that, right? Earth is flat. Nobody even questions it. This is what they thought. To expect them to think otherwise, that's like expecting a prehistoric man to propose a theory of relativity. That ain't going to happen, guys. That just doesn't happen. Yet, we do find Paul, who in his other writings in the Bible declared that women were made for men, who declared that women must submit to men. That was his mindset, just like everybody else but we see him also declaring there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Isn't that awesome? That is incredible. That is remarkable. I mean, where did this come from? Nobody else at the time thought like this. Not even Paul thought like this. That's the remarkable thing about this. We know what Paul thought from all of his other writings in the Bible. He just spouts off so many things that's misogynistic or racist. He just goes on. He, We know his mindset. Paul was not this enlightened human being who just was by fluke of DNA accident or something, was 2,000 years ahead of his time. That's not true. We know Paul's mindset. It all went one way. But then all of a sudden, he contradicts himself and says this unbelievable thing that is 2,000 years ahead of his time. This, guys, this is the divine breaking through. This is God speaking. This is, this is compelling evidence that God is speaking through Paul in the Bible because we know this is not what Paul believed. That is powerful, powerful evidence that, God, that the Bible is not all men. This is just miraculous this is divine god speaks through man in the bible so this is my first practical suggestion ask god to help you hear his voice personally to you through the bible the bible can take you to places you cannot go yourself look at paul He is taken 2,000 years ahead of his time despite what he believes. That can happen to us too. God can do powerful things. But because the Bible is both God and man, we need God's help to filter out man part. We need God's help to take us to what is divine beyond what we usually think. You know guys, we already filter the Bible anyway. And we do it thoughtlessly, carelessly. We just think we can just read it. We need God's help. But everyone ignores certain parts of the Bible and filter them out, just using your own criteria, if you don't think about it. I mean, how many of you really think about meat strangled from, you know, and meat with blood in it? How many of you think about that? You just ignore it, right? Let's be honest, fess up. You just ignore that, right? This is in the New Testament, Jerusalem Council, three out of four bindings. And we just don't think about it. It's been filtered out. Why? Why? And then then we filter these things out and then we go back and say, oh, I follow the Bible and its rules. Nobody does. (laughs) No human alive does. There's this strange phenomenon going on within Christian circles that allows people to hold this very contradicting, conflicting, opposing beliefs that makes no sense, ignoring certain passages, and then like hold on to like other passages with death grip. You know, like ignoring passages about slavery, women, or food stuff. And then homosexuality, LGBTQ issues, they're like, Oh my God, if we give in on this, all faith is lost. I mean, what's the standard here? What's the criteria? I mean, if the argument is we have to submit our morality to God's absolute word, why do we not do the food stuff? Just because we don't feel like it? That's just irrational, inconsistent, crazy. Makes you mean. We need God's help. You know, we need to like take it a little bit easy on the Bible. The Bible doesn't have to take the whole weight of faith as if it was the foundation of faith. Our foundation in faith is the risen Christ, the Holy Spirit. We don't have to put all this burden on the Bible. The Bible can be so transformational. If we don't make it this inerrant word of God that we have to submit everything to. You see, the Jerusalem council rejected that demand. Completely. And the reason they did that is not because they believe anything can go now. The reason they rejected that demand that Bible and its rules is the foundation of faith is because they knew that with Christian and Christ's coming and his resurrection, Holy Spirit is now the guardian of faith. The Bible itself tells us this. The law was our guardian until Christ came. The Bible and its laws was our guardian. It was very powerful, but it ended with Jesus Jesus came to end that system. You know, the Bible people of today, to get around this verse, argues that the law here refers to the Old Testament laws and not the New Testament. New Testament is still binding. Technically, that's true. The only Bible they had at the time was the Old Testament. So when they look at this, when they wrote this, that's true. But the thrust of that argument that the New Testament is now our guardian in faith, Please consider that for several hundred years there was no New Testament. It took almost 400 years for there to be consensus New Testament. Back then, these things we find in the Bible, they were just letters written by Paul or Peter or these apostles to their churches. There were lots of letters floating around And so the churches, there were disagreements about what should be in the Bible, what should not be. And that was not settled until the 5th century when they canonized the Bible to decide what should be the Bible and what should not be. So if the law here refers only to the Old Testament laws, and the New Testament is to be our guardian in faith now, That's to argue for 400 years they had no guardian in faith whatsoever. You get that? I mean, are they really saying, Okay, guys, New Testament is coming, but it's going to take 400 years. So for the first 400 years, you guys, sucks to be you. You know, you're screwed because you got nothing. You got no guardian in faith. Just wait, hold on. 400 years from now, we're good. We are in good space, but those, those people who lived for those 400 years were Christians. Oh, come on, right? That's crazy talk. First, Paul doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say New Testament will replace the Old Testament. He says Christ came. Christ, Holy Spirit, he is supposed to be our guardian in faith. And second, if he ever thought that his own writings would substitute the law and will become the guardian in faith, he would have been absolutely horrified. Because he said things like All who depend on obeying the law are under God's curse. The law, the Bible, and its rules. All who depend on obeying the Bible and its rules are under God's curse. Strong warning, don't you think? Strong language. And you would think, why not? Why not? People try to obey Bible and its rules. Why would that fall under God's curse? Because horrible things happen. There are pastors in the South during the Civil War. Godly men, pastors who gave their lives to the service of God, men of conscience. There are letters from the pastors of the South to the pastors of the North pleading with them, please, please don't make slavery a moral issue. They were arguing that yes, slavery is awful. We will argue for its end on practical terms. But please, let's not make this a moral issue. Because if we make this a moral issue, then Bible And its moral authority is destroyed forever. Because we take the Bible as the inerrant word of God. To be followed for all people. We cannot do this. We must hold on to the Bible. And they pleaded with the pastors from the north. These men of God. They were trying to serve God. They were doing this in the name of God. They were arguing for slavery in the name of God. Is slavery a moral issue? Yes or no? Yes, absolutely. But they went into this crazy place because they had to have the Bible bear this weight and pressure. How do you think God felt about all these people of God? Arguing for slavery in the name of God. How do you think God felt? I think he was horrified. This is God's curse. Cursed is right. If you do this, you end up in a very bad place. Fighting against God, thinking you're fighting for God. Horrible. There's... There's this great temptation to make something tangible like the Bible or the church bear the weight of God himself on earth. That's the spirit of idolatry. We cannot go there. That's why the Jerusalem Council denies the Christian Pharisees, the Bible people of their time. They said it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with the Bible and its rules beyond these four requirements. That's what they say. And and this is not because they were anticipating the New Testament in 400 years. They knew what the new guardian in faith was supposed to be. That's what they were practicing themselves. They are listening to the Holy Spirit. And they are saying, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. This is the model of faith for the future. So, so this decree doesn't mean that anything goes. Not for them, not for us. This is not some feel-good pop psychology that's just gonna go with the culture of the time. That if the culture believes slavery is wrong, then we're gonna say slavery is wrong. That's only the last two hundred years. If the culture says, oh, you know, gay weddings okay, we're gonna go with gay wedding. That's not why we are doing this. We're not just saying this because it's the popular thing to do. This is actually very not popular in the church circles. Because Christians, you know, want to have something certain. It's not popular. But we must do this because this is the new covenant. And if we take the Holy Spirit as our guardian in faith, as this suggests, it actually gets harder, not easier. You know, if you take the Holy Spirit as the personal trainer, And the Bible, as the training manual, this is the heart of the new covenant. Sarah preached about last Sunday that God says you shouldn't be telling each other what to do and and what the ways of the Lord is because God himself will become the personal guide for each of us. That's the new covenant. If we do that, it gets harder. You know, if the Bible is your guardian, it's pretty easy if you are men Privileged, goes to church, try not to do horrible things. That's about it, right? That's pretty easy. But come on, that's not how faith should work. That's not how health and life works, right? I mean, consider exercise. If the training manual for some health exercise says running on the training treadmill for 10 minutes is really good for your health, right? So you start running on the treadmill for ten minutes. That's good for you. We should all do that, right? But we shouldn't stop there, don't you think? That doesn't make you all right. You know, over time you need to graduate to CrossFit, right? P ninety six X, you know, Iron Man. Now I've never done any of those things, right? I have a good excuse. I got a back problem. But how about you guys? Come on, you can't just run on the treadmill and think it's okay. Just like that in faith, I mean, just coming to church and trying to be a decent person, I mean, that's fine for you if you're beginners. But you cannot stop there. If you make the Bible, the training manual, then you can stop there. And that's all, that's fine. But if the Holy Spirit is the personal trainer, he takes you to a harder and harder and harder place. That's how it works. I mean, look at me. I don't mean to brag, but I'm going to. (laughs) I have two degrees from Stanford, computer science and economics. People who have those two degrees in the 90s, they're doing pretty well in Silicon Valley. Okay? They're like billionaires, you know, these people. I have Ph.D. from MIT, the best program in the world for economics. In the first service, there was dispute about that because the guy with a Ph.D. from Chicago. But anyway, look at me. I am needing a small neighborhood church. What in the world am I doing here? Right? It's not because Bible told me to do this. It doesn't do that. No, it's a direction from the living God. Life-giving direction from living God. That if I didn't follow, I would be sinning. Because it's going against the personal trainer. I would have less life if I went the other direction. What is sin for me is different from what is sin for you. That is how what the personal trainer model of faith opens up. Bible is not to be allowed uh, to be used like this stick to be allowed to be applied to all people in the same way. The Bible is divine. It comes alive and becomes transformational in the hands of the living God, who will speak to you personally through it. If you are willing to do that, if you, if you ask God to speak to you through the Bible, incredible stuff happens. Like in my case, it happens very, very regularly all the time. When I'm depressed, when I'm stressed, when I'm anxious, God speaks to me in life-giving way through the Bible, but only because God is speaking. I mean, it happens all the time. For example, I get into fights with my wife. Happens all the time. <laughs> you know why? Because I'm in the right and she's in the wrong. <laughs> happens all the time. I'm right, she's wrong. And you know, I feel so strongly about it. And so we get into fights and I'm steaming. And, and, I, talk, and I talk to God. I say, God, you know I'm right. Here are 20 different reasons why I'm right. You know? In case you need a little help to see the light in this case. But she doesn't see it. I mean, I don't know what's wrong with her, but she's not seeing it. She's in the wrong. And so, God, you need to speak to her. Because she listens to you. You're not listening to me. She's not obeying the Bible verse <laughs> that the wives must submit to the husband. She's just, you know, sinning. In every way. But she listens to you. So God, you need to convince her. And here is three reasons that if you need help, you know, tell her these things. And all of a sudden I hear from God. You're not in the right. You're in the wrong. And I think, Oh, uh, that, that can't be God. <laughs> God doesn't speak lies. You know? He sees what's true. And then I realize, wait a minute here. I am thinking all this way. And all of a sudden there's a thought that goes completely opposite. What does that remind you of? Paul in the Bible. And so I think, oh, maybe God is speaking. Because it's so unlike what I'm thinking right now. Then I pay attention. God. You're speaking. Can you, can you tell me more? And then the God uses the Bible. The Bible starts to come alive. I begin to hear and realize. The Bible says it's not about right and wrong. It's about love. The Bible says being focused and obsessed about the right and wrong. That's eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the original sin. That's horrible. It's all about love. When I made my vows and the wedding, my vows were not, I will argue that I'm right. When my wife is in the wrong, I will her straight. I vowed this before God. And because I'm good at arguments, I can tear her apart. That's not my vow. What was my vow? My vow was to love and to build up. That is what every Christian vows when they become a Christian. To build up everyone that you know. To live by love. And then the Bible becomes transformational. I get convicted. I am called to repent. Repentance means turning around 180 degrees. I'm going all this way. I'm called to turn. Go this other way that God is doing to bring me forward to a life-giving place that I cannot go. By myself. The Bible is divine when God uses it like this. Today is Pentecost. Pentecost is the day that we celebrate for the Holy Spirit coming on the church. It is also the day that God gave His law, the laws of Moses, the Bible and its rules. Do you see the significance on the fact that the Holy Spirit chooses this day, the day that all God's people celebrated for the Bible and its rules, Holy Spirit comes on that day. Emphasize the fact. Holy Spirit is now the guardian in our faith. If you do this, you too will be taken forward. You will be taken to a place you cannot go by yourself. And it will be life-giving for everyone. This new covenant faith, we stand on this faith. Amen? God, thank you that you did not just give us a manual and, and, and left and, and said, do your best. You are involved with us. This is the, the meaning of Christ's coming. Thank you, God, that you became one of us and died on the cross to ins- institute a new covenant where you are personally involved in our lives, guiding us everywhere, every time, giving us life everywhere. Help us, Lord to loosen our grips on our need for certainties and help us to trust, place our trust in the living God who speaks life-giving words to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.